Hi, I'm Julia Adolph, and welcome to Loose Leaf Notebook, where we will explore the connection between creativity and mental health, nurturing artistry, emotional intelligence, and self-care. I'm a composer, and I will be sharing my own personal creative process and journey towards mental health, as well as inviting other artists and creative individuals to share their own inspiring stories with you. Today, I am joined by the co-founders of Creatives Care, psychiatrist Alana Mendelson and Katherine Hancock, as well as their director of education, Katya Gruzglina. We talk about the mission of Creatives Care, which aims to partner artists with accessible, affordable mental health care providers. Our conversation covers why therapy is particularly beneficial to those in the arts, how to know when you might need help, and how to approach barriers barriers that keep us from seeking support. Lastly, we discuss questions from our own podcast listeners, which range from how to handle career disappointment, leaving the arts, and how to process the unfolding crisis in the Ukraine. This episode of Loose Leaf Notebook is supported by New Music USA and featured on New Music Box. Hi, Julia. Hi. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having us. Since there's four of us, maybe, you know, we can start by, uh, you could each introduce yourself and tell us your involvement and your role with Creatives Care. Sure. Um, so I'm Alana Mendelson. I'm one of the co-founders of Creatives Care, and I'm a psychiatrist and also a neuroscientist. I'm Catherine Hancock. I am a co-founder. Um, I'm an ex-singer. I now work in digital marketing and, and communications as an agency that specializes in the arts and culture. Um, and I'm Katya, and I am also a singer. Let's say I'm a part-time singer now. Um, and I am currently the director of educational content here uh, at Creatives Care. Um, and I'm also a candidate to become a marriage and family therapist. So can you tell me about the mission of Creatives Care and you know why why we need this organization and this work now in this time? So Catherine and I've known each other for a number of years. Um, back when Catherine was performing and I was in graduate school, and we we had a group of friends who were in the arts. And one of the conversations that came up repeatedly was that navigating mental health in New York was really challenging, and that a lot of artists were dealing with mental health issues and not getting adequate support for that. And when I started doing my psychiatric training and getting, getting exposed to how difficult it is to navigate the mental health care system, it occurred to me that if I wanted to be a practitioner who worked with artists, there would need to be some sort of system in place to help support them. And to my surprise, in New York, despite the fact that we have all of these incredible arts institutions, conservatories, performance venues and a very active philanthropic community that supports the arts, there was still no institution or program that focused specifically on artist mental health. And it seemed like an obvious need that needed to be filled. And our idea was that we knew that providers, you know, they're people like me who want to work with artists, but that they're also were you know donors who wanted to support artists directly and also artists who really were looking to not only get access to treatment but to support other artists in their own mental health recovery and so our idea was to bring all of these communities together so that we can create a um, organization that helps artists get treatment um, but also creates a community 
where we can exchange ideas, raise awareness, and have a sense of mutual engagement and enthusiasm about the mission of what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the challenges facing artists in receiving mental health care, or I mean, anyone for that matter? One of the biggest barriers, unfortunately, is the nature of our healthcare system, which is that in the United States, insurance for a variety of arbitrary and historical reasons is based on employment. And so if you work for a large employer like a bank or a hospital or a law firm, you get insurance through your employer and they can negotiate to get high quality insurance. And a lot of artists are self-employed, they're freelancers, they don't have access to insurance. And the other thing is that in the United States, insurance, even the best commercial insurance, doesn't reimburse for mental health as well as they reimburse for medical health. And so even though there are, you know, a number of, you know, uh, clinics and um, resources in the city, a lot of artists find themselves in the dilemma of, you know, not having insurance or having low quality insurance. And even if they do have insurance, not being able to find a provider that accepts it. So what are you doing to get Creatives Care off the ground? So we've already created a referral network of providers um, from diverse backgrounds in terms of their training and lived experience who share a common personal and professional connection to the arts. So these are people who may have had a background, you know, as a performer or artist before they decided to become a mental health practitioner. And we've already started taking referrals from uh, artists who are looking for treatment. And so what we do is when an artist reaches out to us looking for treatment, we'll schedule a um, confidential phone call with them to get a sense of their needs, what they're looking for, um, what their financial resources and their insurance status is. And then we can go to our network and be able to find a provider who is you know, interested in working with them. Um, and so far we've been having a great deal of success um, to my relief that we've been able to find great referrals for every artist who has reached out to us. We also, of course, are compiling all of the resources that exist in New York City. There, you know, we're not the only people who care about affordable mental health. And so sometimes we'll be able to help connect artists to resources that already exist in the city. But what our ultimate goal is as we start to become a more professional organization and raise money is to be able to subsidize treatment costs for artists who um, are not otherwise able to afford treatment. What do you consider to be an artist? How do you define that? That is a conversation that we're having right now. <laughs> what we're doing right now is frankly, anyone who's looking for assistance, we're gonna try to help them. If you're an artist and you also are waiting tables or you're an artist and you're also in school, um, we obviously wanna help you find resources. If we're going to be subsidizing treatment costs, it would be primarily for people who are earning their livelihoods at, in, in the arts. For now, it's just in New York State, correct? Exactly. And the reason for that is because in our fractured healthcare system, we have licensing based on states, which is actually a huge issue for artists because many people in the performing arts travel frequently. And one of the challenges that we're you know, needing to navigate is there are a lot of people who are away frequently for their work, but to be fair with COVID, things are getting a little bit confusing and 
more flexible. And so hopefully that will be less of an issue going forward. What do you think of better help or these virtual forms of therapy? So there are a couple of things to be mindful of when it comes to the new sorts of telehealth platforms that have been coming online. So some of these have predated the pandemic. Um, I believe BetterHelp has been around for a number of years. But one of the biggest changes that happened in the last year um, is that because of COVID, some of the regulations around prescribing um, for patients that have not been seen in person were relaxed. And so we've seen um, the venture capital space flood in. And now these new startups with really cute sounding names where you can get Adderall over the internet and whatnot. And, you know, Catherine and I've had discussions on this because on the one hand, for certain people, this is fantastic. Like, you know, psychiatrists are expensive. If you are someone who, you know, your diagnosis, you know what medication you need, it's not complicated and you just, just need someone to prescribe, this could be a really helpful, affordable option. The problem is that a lot of people are going to these services not having had a full evaluation. What these companies do is they have you answer a couple questions. They might do a 15, 30 minute interview, but mental health is really complicated. Um, the vast majority of people who have one mental health challenge have two or three mental health challenges. Um, and so being able to tease apart what actually is going on takes a bit of time. And so unfortunately, my colleagues and I have heard stories of people using these services and having uh, bad experiences, like someone, you know, getting Adderall or actually even ketamine over the internet. Um, and then it actually making them much worse because they didn't actually have ADHD or depression. Um, they had terrible anxiety and actually they weren't being treated appropriately. So it's tricky because essentially what we have is a free market capitalist model where people, patients are having to make the decisions for themselves about what kind of treatment they need. And there's no way that any individual could possibly know what kind of service is going to be best suited to them, because there are some people who would do great with BetterHelp or great with Cerebral or any of these other online companies. But not everyone should be using these services. And it's very difficult um, for people to be making educated decisions about what kind of treatment is going to be best for them. Mm -hmm. And I think to add to that, and something we keep hearing about more and more is that I tried therapy, but my therapist just didn't get my particular struggles as an artist. Mm -hmm. And if we're moving into talk therapy, uh, as opposed to medication management, I would say personally, I think better help is better than nothing, um, but they're not gonna give that same amount of care as we are hoping to with a therapist or a psychiatrist or a social worker who not only cares about artists, but has some experience personal or personal interest in really understanding what an artist is going through. What we'd like to do is have essentially an organization that artists can feel like they can turn to if they have questions. It's not even necessarily if you want to find a provider and get connected to treatment, because we recognize that for a lot of people, it can take time to, you know, come to the decision to start treatment if that's something that you'd like to do. But essentially, we'd like to offer guidance and advice for anyone who has these sorts of questions, because no one should feel like they have to figure this out on their own if they're asking themselves, 
Should I be in therapy? Do I need medication? Is an online service appropriate for me? Or do I really need to see a provider in person? You know, what we're going to be offering is consultations with trained professionals who can provide guidance. And right now, because we're just getting started, that person is me, but we're hoping um, in the near future, as we start growing as an organization to um, be able to have full-time staff who can be able to be helpful in this way. And so what it, what would be your advice for someone um, looking for affordable mental health care? Julia, I think that you have listeners who might not live in New York State and might not have something like creatives care and still want to seek treatment. That There are, you know, we've provided resources on our site and these are New York State specific, but um, people can often look at schools as well, where there are therapists in training. And sometimes those schools have clinics associated with them. No questions asked, either zero fee or low fee therapy, um, as well as just other training clinics in their state. So I know this is a big question, but how do you know if you need help? I think one of the things that we want to do as an organization um, is try to change the conversation about mental health treatment, which is that you don't have to have a problem to seek out mental health support. You don't have to need help to seek out mental health support. That being in therapy is not just about solving a problem or becoming a better person or working through a challenge. It's about personal growth. And for many artists, it can be about artistic and creative growth. Um, learning how to explore your own identity, your relationships, your background, your family can be an incredibly meaningful and important experience for people, not only personally, but creatively. And so I, we, would, we would sort of say, you know, it, it's not about whether you need help, it's about do you have an interest in exploring this aspect of yourself uh, in the context of a therapeutic relationship. And, and I, would, I would add that um, that's our hope, our ideal that therapy is more of a maintenance program. Um, I think one of the barriers, um, to kind of circle back to your earlier question in the arts, is that there's an attachment sometimes to mental illness. And we've talked a lot about the archetype of a tortured artist and how it's almost a badge of honor. Like the more you've been through, the more you can sing about. Knowing when to ask for help, I think is is incredibly important because unfortunately, before people can even consider like therapy as a maintenance, as maintenance as part of our daily well-being, it gets to a crisis point and it's hard to know how to identify that, especially when you're like, oh, well, I'm haven't slept for three days, but I just wrote, a, you know, I just wrote an amazing paper or I just wrote a piece or I just, you know, uh, practiced all night long or there's a, it's an unhealthy relationship with hustling, with work ethic, with uh, pain. Right. There's masochism to the work that we do as artists. So that's one of the barriers. And we found as well that um, as much as it has the work it's been done the past few years and destigmatization has really helped people get more comfortable talking about the subject. There is still a sort of um, apprehension about taking that actual step to find care. So that's a very important topic. And I'd love to hear um, 
from each of you, just from, from your professional and or personal experience, is there a correlation between mental illness and creative process or creativity? Is this a myth? Is this based in some version of reality? Um, why do we think that there's a connection between being an artist and having some kind of mental health issue? So, I mean, maybe there's a distinction to be made between having a connection with one's own human experience and suffering and having a mental health challenge because everyone goes through experiences of sadness, grief. Um, many people have had experiences that are traumatic and having access to those experiences are part of what makes us human and clearly play an important role in thinking about what art does and how to create meaningful art that connects with people in their own experience. But that doesn't mean that you have to have a, an experience of suffering or anxiety or trauma that overwhelms your capacity to actually function and live and be productive. There's a big difference between having an understanding of one's trauma and being consumed with it and being unable to get out of bed in the morning. And so, um, you know, certainly in my experience working with people who have depression, anxiety, PTSD, and whatnot, um, you know, when you're struggling with a mental health challenge and it's impacting your ability to sleep, eat, function, pay attention, and get, you know, any kind of pleasure out of life, it's really hard to do anything, let alone creative work. You suffering doesn't equal tremendous artist. You suffering means you're suffering. <laughs> And right. you need some help. When in your life have you felt that you need to suffer for your art or let's say for your job in the arts? I um, mean, yeah. three years old to 35. <laughs> I remember being a little unempathetic around people who had trouble learning music as quickly as I did or had trouble keeping up with homework or prioritized other parts of their lives because I had been so conditioned to think, on a really visceral level that music was this pinnacle, like it was on such a pedestal and I was a servant. And I, that just really cracked for me um, in my master's when a lot of things happened that made me um, relieved when I got a vocal injury. In terms of um, that, how that then uh, reflects on the admin side, which I think is a really interesting topic. I would say there's a similar not quite as personal when you're on the admin side, but there's a similar sort of like, well, you're in the arts, you're lucky to be here. So we can take advantage of your passion to underpay you, to overwork you, and to basically give, not ensure you, not, not give you what you deserve for the work you're doing, because you're so lucky to be in the arts. And that over time, I really think, eats away at one sense of personal of value. So were you able to recover from your from your vocal injury? Yeah, so I did recover. I ended up having to have surgery. The injury happened my first year of master's. I ended up on about 25 to 30 rounds of prednisone over a two-year period, um, which is horrific. Um, it messes with like how your brain communicates with your muscles, all physically. Also that very bad for mood and anxiety as well. But yeah, I was, I was being um, prescribed prednisone in a really irresponsible way from people who 
were some of the best vocal doctors in the world. I then took a year off and I think I like waited tables and I very randomly and coincidentally had a customer one day who's was from the same tiny town. He was a doctor. Uh, he's like, you need to go see this doc. You need to go see Mass General Hospital's Vocal Institute. So I went there. They were able to properly diagnose me. I recovered and I started singing at, you know, not, it was never the same, but um, I was singing at a high enough level to get good jobs. I also was injured at a different time than Catherine. I was injured when I was 20 years old. This is just so interesting because we all sort of suffer in silence. <laughs> you know, we're told, hey, don't, don't say that you're injured. And had we had someone say, oh no, this person's injured and this one and this one, and we had a conversation about it, maybe things would be a little different. But first of all, you can't communicate, you can't speak. So you completely lose your sense of self. And then my voice is tied into my whole being, right? So who am I now? And then there are physical manifestations of that. You get something called muscle tension dysphonia where you just, you can't sing. And it, when you do, you have really intense pain. And so I just, the thought of why well, really physically suffered just to sing for a half an hour, 15 minutes. And I never thought, oh, this is wrong. I was like, oh no, I'm just going to have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing through this. Um, and then I started becoming interested in, you know, how does your mental health affect your voice? And what's interesting is about something like MTD, it's not, yes, vocal therapy is going to be helpful and it was, but for me, actually just talk therapy was helpful because when you start mitigating your anxiety about performing and your anxiety in general, your muscles can relax. So why do you think therapy and or medication is beneficial to artists or creatives in particular? First of all, I think therapy is great for everybody. Um, I'm a bit of an evangelist. I think therapy is fantastic. Um, but that being said, I think for artists, it's especially helpful because essentially what you're doing in therapy, well, the, first of all, there's different types of therapy. Um, however, the kind of therapy I think most of us typically think of is called psychodynamic therapy. This is like the New Yorker cartoon where you're like talking about your parents and like talking about all of these difficult things that are going on and trying to understand their origins and, and, and how they've made you the person that you are. But that kind of therapy is built around creating narratives of your own life experience, integrating the experiences that you've had both in childhood and as an adult to better understand how you see yourself as a person and how that impacts your sense of self and your relationships. And for artists, developing a language in therapy for how to talk about these things, how to talk about emotions, how to talk about very difficult personal experiences, that language can carry through creatively in, what, in, in the same way of how you express yourself creatively. You know, I did psychodynamic therapy for, for 13 years, and I always felt a correlation to what was going on in my work. And I would often get ideas for my work after sessions, maybe not immediately after, but, you know, the next day after I'd had some times to process. And, and my therapist um, and I would joke around because I would always have a dream the night before therapy. So I would, I called it my, my therapy Eve dream. And I'd have a very vivid dream that would then become the content of, uh, of the session. 
And a lot of times I would take images from those dreams and I use them as titles for my pieces or they would inspire um, certain ideas. So, I, I mean, I know I personally had that experience. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about the idea of talking about art in a treatment is very similar to talking about dreams. So the reason we talk about dreams in psychodynamic therapy is not just because we're a bunch of New Yorker cliches and we're just like totally self-absorbed shrinks. Um, it's actually an extremely useful tool for developing themes that may have been percolating in the treatment. In my experience, in the experience of every psychiatrist or therapist I know when people talk about dreams and treatment it's like uh it, it, it's like going on light speed where you get to you just you just make so much progress and develop so many new insights and so when people um who are artists are in treatment and bring their art into the therapy and talk about something that they're working on artistically or creatively you can use that in the same lens or connecting it to something that's going on in the therapy in terms of how they're understanding themselves and their relationships. And so um, I see a lot of parallels between those sorts of those sorts of experiences. Absolutely, because it's it's essentially when you're writing and when you're dreaming, I suppose, uh, you are coming up with um, metaphors and imagery that are creating or revealing narratives and your internal world and and you're trying to understand them and and represent them and recreate them so we did have um some listeners submit anonymous questions um that i'd love to just sort of open up for discussion so the first question is i'm struggling to deal with accepting that career objectives i set decades ago will not be realized how do I cope with the disappointment? I've struggled to find direction because I've struggled to let go. It's challenging. Um, you know, when you've spent your whole life working towards something and building up a sense of narrative about who you are and what your life is going to look like, there can be a, a predicament where that singular focus, which would allow you to move towards that goal, um, can become restrictive and inflexible and not allow you to make adaptations for what happens when uh, you know, life has other plans. And everyone faces career or personal setbacks or um, unexpect unexpected events that require us to recalibrate our sense of our, 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 our sense of ourselves and what our lives look like. But for artists, this is especially challenging because it's not just their career, it's their identity. And so when an artist faces a career setback, it can be um, an existential issue. It seems that, you know, the way to move forward is to develop new ways of building more flexible narratives for how to understand your life, your purpose, how to grieve the loss of those dreams and aspirations um, in order to then create new forms of meaning out of those experiences. Because, um, you know, renouncing a career in the arts is not, you know, you, you can't just pretend like you were never an artist. I mean, I think this is what we've been hearing from Katya and Catherine that, um, you know, even if they're no longer pursuing a career that's exclusively based on performing the experiences that you guys have had 
becoming and training as artists are something you're going to be carrying with you for the rest of your lives. And so how to be able to reflect on those experiences and create meaning out of it is extremely important in moving forward. And I think also uh, knowing that while sometimes when you're approaching or considering leaving a prof professional career as an artist, the skills you've developed can be applied in many other areas. I remember bringing these same issues up to my therapist. You know, how do I, how do I make meaning of the fact that I haven't accomplished my goals and what do I do? And she said, you know, instead of, have you ever thought instead of living through goals, living through your values? And I started to think more about that. Like, who am I really, if I'm not, if you lose everything, what do I have at my core? And so I started doing a lot of values work and, and instead of approaching my life through goals that I may have set for myself, underneath those goals was I still living by the values that I set for myself. And I found that really comforting. So the next question, um, recently I decided to leave the field of music, as we were just discussing, due to the unpredictable nature of the career path and my need for stability for my family. But now I feel like I've abandoned my instrument as I've been out of practice for years, making me feel like a failure. I miss making music deeply and I'm not sure what to do from here because the stability also brings me great peace of mind. The obvious answer to me is to join a community ensemble, but I feel too ashamed now with much of my musicianship has deteriorated uh, since my prime, embarrassing myself. How can I reckon with this in a healthy way? So I hear a lot of judgment and I hear a lot of shame in that question, um, which for everything we've talked about makes a lot of sense <laughs> because these are the things that happen in this career. Um, and now I will say something that my lovely auto, uh, ENT told me when I was getting scoped weekly. He helped me to let go of the expectation of what was going to come out. He said, these are what you're dealing with. Rely on the sensations and the things that you know how to do and that you knew how to do and let go of the expectation of what's going to come out. And then also maybe instead of shame to approach this with curiosity. I had an interesting experience a few years ago. Um, I, so I'm, I studied violin and I'm actually currently very out of practice, but um, before COVID I played with a doctor's orchestra at Wild Cornell. They have a music and medicine program. And so the orchestra was comprised of lots of people like me who are doctors and scientists and amateur musicians. But we got a bunch of ringers who came in from Manhattan School of Music in Juilliard, which was awesome for us because they were fantastic. And after a rehearsal, I was on the bus back home and I started speaking to one of them and I apologized and I said, I'm so sorry, you guys are at Juilliard, you're so talented, you have to play with a bunch of amateur musician doctors, like how could you, how could you tolerate this? And they said to me, you know, actually it's such a pleasure to get to play with people who are just doing it for fun. It's actually a more rewarding experience than even just you know some of the highest level kinds of rehearsals that we um we participate in and i have to say <laughs> playing playing with them was was a real pleasure you don't just shut the door on the arts and i think that something that's been really joyful for me since i 
left and it's you know an up and down thing it's not a straight trajectory up of like this resolution of like being at peace with everything but i definitely have rediscovered a love of music that i lost when i was a performer you know if you have an artistic practice that was very overtrained in one area if you can find a new way of getting to experience um music in a different way, whether with a different instrument or in a different setting or with different people, it can be a way of looking at it from a different perspective and being able to find that joy and excitement again. Okay, so our next question. My question stems from the inevitable comparison I feel when I see peers more successful than me. I find myself getting quite frustrated with the well-cushioned financial support I see others receive to pursue music while I struggle to make ends meet with multiple jobs. I take gigs I don't like because I need the money and it drains my energy. It crushes my spirit. I'm always left feeling jealous. What do I do with this feeling without losing my mind? Oh boy, this is something we've talked about a lot. I know Catherine has a lot of feelings about it, which is the issue of the arts being a zero sum game where if your friend or peer gets ahead, it means that's one less opportunity for you. And that is a structural problem in the arts that unfortunately, you know, we as mental health providers can't fix. There's a lot of reframing approaches you can do in a therapeutic context to try to understand um, how to at least not torture yourself and beat yourself up um, and feel consumed by jealousy. But unfortunately, some of these things that you're describing are, are very real challenges that artists face. And this is where I think that peer support is really important. I'm obviously, as a mental health professional, I think that we are awesome and can be really helpful, but there are significant limitations to what we can provide. And I think that there is no, there's no substitute for peer support, which is that if you are an artist, having connections with other artists who are going through the same thing and being able to hear other people's stories and feel like you are not alone. And I would also say that, um, to echo Alana, like that's a real thing, like, and it really does infiltrate its way into our lives on a level that extends beyond art. It's um, such a specific competitive field but it doesn't reflect on you personally or artistically just because someone else is getting ahead. So being able to sort of simultaneously acknowledge that this is real and also trying to objectify it by knowing that, no, that success is not my failure. It's just the nature of my business that I'm not gonna let it lead into the rest of my life where I am gonna be jealous. I feel for this person because it is these are real systemic issues and Yes, peer support is excellent and everything Catherine says I'm so on board with and and you know honestly bringing it back to our mission while therapy might not be able to help the systemic challenges it can certainly help uh, the person who's asked this question to sort through their feelings about what's going on and whether or not this is something that they can continue to deal with whether this is something they can change their thinking about whether this is something that they may need to let go of. And so therapy is the perfect place to explore that with, with somebody who, who 
holds no judgment and has your best interest at heart. Our last question uh, from a listener um, is very much about what's going on in the world today. Um, how do we deal with the ongoing horrific realities of war and the fact that so few people care to take a stand against violence through their artistic presence? This is a big question. I think there's two things in this question that we need to address. One is how do we cope with, with trauma when it is unfolding? And um, I'm, I'm remembering that the slogan of the you know, HIV activists in the early 90s, which is silence equals death. And that is, I think, still true today, that the way to work through trauma as it is unfolding is to talk about it and to not pretend like it's not happening and to acknowledge how difficult it is. The second thing that I think this listener is getting at is the question of advocacy, which is it's not enough to just take care of oneself in these situations, that there is an ethical and moral responsibility to be looking out for others. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot with regards to the work that we're doing in Creatives Care is we're trying to help artists and connect them to care. Um, and I worry, is that just a Band-Aid on a broken mental health system? Um, and I think one of the things that I hope we can do is think about not only how can we make a difference locally um, by helping individuals, but use that as a way to act globally in terms of um, advocating for a more socially just and equitable healthcare system. And as that pertains to what the listeners referencing with regards to war, um, I'm, I'm recalling that the pianist Igor Levit had a beautiful uh, statement this week about what's happening in Ukraine. And he said that being an artist or a musician does not mean that you don't have a responsibility to take a stand about what's happening in the world. And I think that's a really, that's a wonderful sentiment. Not everyone has the privilege to take a stand. A lot of people have, um, their, their careers are precarious. Um, they are themselves, you know, carefully monitoring their online presence. And so it's, it's important to at least try to be non-judgmental and understanding that everyone is navigating this in their own particular way. And keep in mind that like a lot of people when faced with trauma, their natural response is to freeze and shut down and hide. And their lack of being publicly and demonstratively upset, enraged and advocating does not mean that they don't care. Um, and, and that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways that people are experiencing and navigating this conflict. I was born in Lugansk, Ukraine. It's in the eastern part of Ukraine that's now run by separatists. I think the only thing I can say is that I feel for you and I feel with you. Um, and we are all humans first. <laughs> um, just to keep that sort of 
I'm having sort of a hard time talking about this, but just to keep that in mind, we are, we are all collectively dealing with this together and now might not be the time to analyze what's happening, but to take care of yourself while it's happening, to take the smallest steps to show yourself compassion and care. Yeah. I'm having a hard time um, and I'm having a hard time understanding how I feel about my own identity. That part of the uh, of Ukraine, we speak Russian there. And another part of this is that I'm a Jewish refugee. So in my passport, um, it's a USSR, uh, yeah, my USSR passport and my, my birth certificate under ethnicity, it says Jewish. So it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't Ukrainian, it was Jewish. And so there's, there's this whole mess of identity that I'm sort of navigating and dealing with. And my, my parents are having a hard time with guilt that they can't do anything. And oh my, it's just a lot. I wish that I could say, I don't know. I think every day, I mean, my family's group chat is just, I mean, since we've been having this conversation, I think I've missed 94 messages about what's going on. I think shock shock. Yeah, I, I want to just highlight that it's, you know, it, when we're having a hard time, and I, I, I know Eric and I have been pretty devastated this, this past week about what's going on. And when we feel powerless, um, it's understandable that the best way we, we sort of know how to engage is to not engage. And, you know, we've had to remind ourselves, like, are we reaching out to our friends who are Ukrainian and our friends who are trying to get out of Moscow, because this is, a, you know, we live in a global world where I think a lot of us, even as Americans have relationship connections to this conflict in one way or another. And, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to know how to handle it. Like, do we reach out to people and say, how are you doing? Do we not press too hard because we don't want to upset someone who's already suffering? It's not no easy answers. We're finding out new information every single day. Like it's, it's just, I think that back to making meaning of things, I'm not sure that I'm in a place yet to make meaning of, of what's going on. That's important to recognize. One of the themes that's come up in this whole conversation that we've been having is that you know, certainly this is true for Katya and for Catherine, but for me as well, that, you know, we've all had experiences for better and for worse that have shaped us, you know, to become the people that we are. And we're trying to figure out new ways of creating meaning through it. And, you know, creating this organization, Creatives Care, is not just about trying to help people. It's also kind of therapeutic for us, a way of creating meaning out of our own experiences integrating our our love of art our you know our personal connection to mental health our desire to for other people to benefit from the lived experiences that we've gone through and that is essentially the whole process of meaning making that becomes important when people are navigating um, life transitions. If listeners want to find Creatives Care or ask you questions, can they ask you questions even if they're from out of state? Um, they can ask us questions, though our ability to be able to be helpful may be more limited. Sure. Um, 
basically they can just get in touch with us. Um, we have a sign up form on our website. They can shoot us an email. Um, and we really want to hear from artists about their experience with this, not just in terms of them looking for treatment or guidance, but we want their feedback on how we can be better as an organization. We want to know what the specific challenges are and figure out how to be growing and adapting to be better serving the artist community. So please do email info at creativescare.org, um, follow us on social media, sign up with our uh, sign up form. We have a newsletter. So please hit us at all those places. And if we're a little slow to respond, it doesn't mean we won't be in touch. It just means there we're a small staff right now and we're juggling uh, day jobs and whatnot. And at the very least, we're creating content for both providers and artists about how to navigate things. And while some of them might be state specific, not all of them are. Um, things like questions you can ask your therapists or what a therapist should know about working with an artist or the types of therapy models there are. And so we're going to be coming out with a lot of really good content for anybody. I hope this episode was helpful to anyone who might be considering therapy and who may have questions about the therapeutic process. Please feel free to reach out to the Creatives Cares team, as well as myself. And I really do believe, like Ilana said, that therapy can be helpful to anybody and that like the artistic process, therapy helps us to understand and process our own internal stories. So thank you, Elana, Catherine, and Katya for being with me today, and thanks for listening. This episode is supported by New Music USA and featured on New Music Box. Thank you for listening to Loose Leaf Notebook. I'm Julia Adolph, and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work, Dark Sand Sifting Light, performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music, you can visit my website at juliaadolph.com or my YouTube channel, which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again. <laughs>